Joe here with the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. We are getting much closer to the 100th episode, getting a lot of things lined up, some fun things in store for episode 100. Of course, every episode has its own unique adventure, experience, and characters. And today's episode is supported by Sawbill Canoe Outfitters. Owners Claire and Dan Shirley live right on the edge of the Boundary Waters from their home at the end of the Sawbill Trail. Hey, Claire. Hey, Dan. So, Claire, the seasons are changing here on the Wilderness Edge. What's your favorite part about fall? Everything. I love the colors, the cooler temperatures, and that little extra time to connect with all of the great people that visit us here at Sawbill. And lots of good coffee. Yes, we love our coffee here at Sawbill. We are so fortunate to have a world-class coffee roaster right down the road in Lutzen, Fika Coffee. We serve their coffee in our store and send it out in our food packs. What are you looking forward to this fall, Dan? One of the exciting things about fall is that we start to find new homes for our retired canoes. Sawbill is well known for its refurbished canoes that we sell, and those will start becoming available later this fall. But we're doing something a little different this year. We're doing a limited pre-sale of unrefurbished canoes that are available to be picked up right now. These canoes are still in great shape, but you can pick them up at a discount and still have time to take it on a fall trip. Speaking of fall trips, BWCA permits are increasingly available as September wears on. That said, we've seen many cancellations this season and permits becoming available on short notice. So if you have designs on a fall trip and have some flexibility in your schedule, keep an eye out for last minute permits. Give us a call if you need any tips on booking permits this time of year. Sawbill is open until October 20th, which gives you the opportunity to visit after the quota permit season ends on September 30th. Fall is also a time we like to reflect on all the great moments of the season. We have so much gratitude for all the folks who visit us this season and who continue to make Sawbill their home away from home. For sure, and that gratitude especially extends to the Sawbill crew. We are so fortunate to have such a kind and hardworking group of people that spend the open water season with us. Sawbill crew members become like family and we appreciate them so much. Our newsletter is available at sawbill.com, so please keep in touch with us this winter. And enjoy the podcast! This is the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. This is the wilderness that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experiences were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you swim through the lake, you have breakfast, then you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking. We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake, and I remember catching walleye there before. I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters, and it's, it was really cool. It was my first time. The route from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with only a day pack, uh, we take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars. I will set my sights by the northern star and in the deep dark blue. Oh, and in the deep dark blue come the northern light. Welcome to episode 98 of the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. I'm Matthew Baxley. I'm Joe Fredericks. Today's episode takes us into history and all the way across the million acres of wilderness to the far western end on Rainy Lake. We're getting into Voyager National Park, 
that area, the, as you're saying, the far, far western side. And we use that term boundary waters to mean Lake Superior sometimes, all the way over toward Lake of the Woods. This whole area, the boundary waters. Quetico. Of course. Spirit National Forest. Mm-hmm. All the waters that make up the boundary between Minnesota and Canada. And that is a diverse place and history. Many of our listeners are familiar with the name Sigurd Olson. Certainly, if they listen to the podcast, you and I have been to Listening Point a couple times over the years. He's an icon of northern Minnesota wilderness protection. Right. A name that is not a household name, if you will, like Sigurd Olson is, Ernest Olberholzer. Who? (laughs) (laughs) You know who he is. I do now. But many people might not. Exactly. And an important, pivotal person in this region changed the course of history and what we now enjoy today. Today we're going to learn more about Ernest Olberholzer and his home that he had when he was alive on Rainy Lake at a place called Mallard Island. It's now a foundation where artists can come and work and Other people come and work to preserve the property, and it's just an amazing place. And you spent a whole week out there just recently in the summer of 2023. With that in mind, let's head out to the island. I'm Rebecca Otto, and I am the executive director of the Ernest C. Oberholzer Foundation. So Ober was born in Davenport, Iowa, and there was some tragedy early in his life. He lost his youngest brother. His parents divorced when he was young. They went to live with his mom's parents. And when they used to go visit the gravesite of his brother, he got to know the gravedigger in the there. And he used to also stare at the river that went by. And this gravedigger told him that those were they were giant logs that were coming down the river. And he said, those are coming from the northern woods. And supposedly Ober was fascinated by these giant trees. And at the age of 17, he got rheumatic fever and was very sick. So after that, he was told by a doctor he might not live very long. And some people that have, you know, read his, the biography about him, Keeper of the Wild, think that maybe that gave him the freedom to do things that other people might not do. So something important about Ober is that he went to Harvard. And that ended up being a great tool for him. He had a network of people. He got to experience the Great North. He came up here and he ended up going on this epic canoe journey, 2,000 miles in 1912 from June to November in many unmapped areas. And he had an indigenous guide whose name was Billy McGee. Um, And Billy McGee was already, I think, 51 when they got together and Ober was young um, in his 20s. So they did this journey that they probably shouldn't have lived through. <laughs> and they did miraculously. And there's some great books written about this. And there's a journal that, you know, you can read Ober's journal. But um, that all changed Ober's life, completely transformed him. And he realized that having these great wild open spaces and this water and the wildlife was transformative for human health, mental health, physical health. And so he began advocating for the area and there was a critical point where he learned about Edward Backus's plan to create these giant basins for industry out of the Rainy Lake watershed, which could have been extraordinarily devastating. And he knew that it would fundamentally change everything for everyone going forward forever. So why should you even care about Ober? He's one of the greatest unsung environmental heroes of our, of our time. People know who Sigurd Olson was. Sigurd was younger than Ober. 
Ober ended up leading the fight to stop the industrializing of this extraordinary water resource and save it for people's health, you know, for our future, for the wildlife. So we are, we should be thanking him. Had these basins been put in, the water would have gone way up. It would have fundamentally changed the landscape, changed the resources, pushed a lot of people out, and we wouldn't have Quetico Superior. We wouldn't have Voyagers. We wouldn't have Boundary Waters Canoe Area but for his leadership and the work of many others. And I will say something to admire about his leadership skills is that he was a connector. He understood the importance of utilizing his, his Harvard network of attorneys and financiers and, you know, different people that were influential. Influence was really important. He also understood the plight of local governments who needed tax ref, you know, resources. He worked with members of Congress. He worked both sides of the aisle. So he was very smart in the way he approached this, and he was also detail-oriented. And so he really raised that debate about what's the proper use of resources when it comes to industry versus people, and the people one. Rainy Lake is a massive body of water covering some 360 square miles as it straddles the border of the United States and Minnesota and Ontario and Canada. The nearest town in Minnesota is International Falls and there's Voyagers National Park on the southeastern corner of the lake. Oberholzer ended up here around 1915 as part of a business venture, as Rebecca explains. So he was working with a gentleman named William Hapgood who had some money, and he wanted to start kind of a farm up here, which is, you know, it was probably uh, a stretch. So they had an island, and they brought in some livestock, and they were going to grow food, and it didn't go very well. Ober was heading that up. And so in lieu of payment, my understanding is Hapgood gave Ober Mallard Island. And so this is where he established his home that he had for 40 years. And so this is this little tiny sliver of granite in Rainy Lake, very low profile, and he built all these whimsical little buildings through the help of um, Swedish carpenter Emil Johnson and it's very playful there's all kinds of little secret spaces and trap doors and there were rooftop decks most of them are gone now but he balanced all these little buildings across this little tiny sliver of granite and yet they're tucked in he was really smart about how he did it so people don't really realize how many little buildings are here until they're actually on the island they go wow I had no idea so he was masterful with his planning and vision of this special place that he used for decades to bring people in to bring leaders in to bring friends in and artists in and where they figured out how to save a beautiful place He also traveled, he traveled a lot and went to dinner at many people's homes. Lots of people knew him in the area. He'd go to Chicago for the holidays. He'd, you know, Minneapolis, he had lots of friends and supporters there. So when you meet people who knew Ober, they remember him coming to dinner. Uh, He had a violin that he played. He'd play the violin. He told stories. He was a big storyteller. He was quite a character and fun to be around. So we have this charismatic, interesting character named Ernest Olberholzer. But what's he got to do with the boundary waters? That's really a great question. And we like to share this with young environmental you know, leaders. They were able to get the Shipstead Nolan Act passed in 1930. That was a foundational law that was used. It was the first time that wilderness, a wilderness area was recognized by Congress officially. And that law was the foundation for all other wilderness laws. So it was a really big deal. It took a long time. It took resources. It took patience and persistence. And so... 
from that, you know, Wilderness Act, you know, we have the Boundary Waters Canoe Area that was established. The Boundary Waters Canoe Area was established a year after Ober passed. But, you know, it was that long progressive conversation and debate that we have over, and it's been going on for a long time. It's industry versus people and their interests and their ability to recreate and have these wild open spaces that we can still visit. We, we always acknowledge indigenous people, you know, that they were there first. And at this point, when he was doing advocacy, he was very close with indigenous people of the area and had great respect for all of them and engaged with them in a really constructive way. But at that point, it was industry trying to take over these resources. And so um, Ober recognized indigenous practices in terms of like forest management and different things like that. And he really wanted us to know that they were really keepers of knowledge. I mean, so that's kind of cool, too. Rebecca was hired as the director of the Oberholzer Foundation in December 2020. During her first season on the island, there was drought, and it was the first time people had been back since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Following that, in 2022, there was a historic flood on Rainy Lake. Needless to say, her first two years as the lead of the organization were memorable. Yeah, so my first year here, we were experiencing severe drought, and there were the Canadian wildfires, and there was actually ash in the air, and this place was very dry, so we were really worried about fire. Um, and we were coming we were coming out of COVID, still in it though, so we had limited programming, um, so that was a challenge. And then the next year was the largest flood in the history of Rainy Lake, um, and so it was saving collections, saving buildings, then doing you know remediation, restoration. Um, we've come a long way since then, and we've been able to provide programming this year, which is really exciting. Um, I can tell you that having been in public service for so long, and also having been in business, been, in, been through I've been through crises. You know, there's crises that happen, whether it's a major st- a state budget deficit, or you you know you're going to be cut by a certain amount, or being in business and the job doesn't go quite right, and you have to go in and fix that. I have a lot of life experience that I was able to bring to the table. We have great volunteers who work for us, and so it was for me very easy to go okay we have to do this now we have to do this as the water was rising we got to get all these books out of here we got to get a move to higher ground so um it was natural and we had really good people helping i think this place is special enough that it kind of shows you what needs to happen and you just have to pay attention and so that's what i did that's what the volunteers did and once the waters finally receded we were i was amazed at that it was the damage wasn't much worse um, there was a lot of cleanup, there was a lot of floor repair, but I tell you, we have a great group of people and we just had people coming in over and over. And then this spring we did more cleanup and I would call this flood a cleansing experience. It really was. I don't, I think so much good came out of it. I think we're stronger than ever. And, you know, really right now what we're working to do is making sure that this place continues to be available for generations to come. Though she's now the Oberholzer Foundation Director, previously, Rebecca Otto served as the State Auditor of Minnesota. This is a statewide elected position. And though Mallard Island now serves as an office for her of sorts, she also has a deep connection to the Boundary Waters. Um, Well, I'm in Minnesota because of the Boundary Waters, so I didn't grow up in Minnesota, but I went there for the first time when I was 14 uh, with a Y camp, and... I would say that it changed my life. You know, I think we're all confused when we're a teenager and, you know, we have doubts. And I think that I had quite a bit of chaos and some trauma in my life when I was young. And when I went there, 
and not having been on in the Boundary Waters before. You had to pass certain tests in order to go on a trip, and I did, some physical tests. And, um, oh, you had to be able to paddle certain strokes. You had to be able to portage a canoe, and we were carrying pretty heavy grummins at that time. <laughs> you had to be able to swamp your canoe and, you know, ride it, because sometimes that happens when you're out there. And so they wanted to make sure we were safe. And when you're 14, you're not completely physically, you know, you're still growing. So, But I was able to. And I got to go on my first trip, a 10-day trip. And the group that I went with, they like to do pretty intense trip, cover a lot of miles. And if you've never done it before, it's, you know, for us, it was like that constant paddling, you know, setting up camp, breaking down camp, you know, making your food, collecting the firewood, all the things you do. Um, And then we would try to go to places no one else would go, which was the really hard portages, you know, miles straight uphill, (laughs) heavy food packs. I remember basswood, crooked, like that that was definitely a trip. And I remember really high winds on one of those big lakes where it was really hard to cross. But I think what it taught me, I think the act of being out in the wilderness and away from everything and the act of paddling every day and doing physical exertion repetitively helps you work through really hard problems when you're, you know, you're struggling or you're angry, you know, working out your anger or working out your confusion. Um, It gets you away from your normal life. And then the experiences you have with wildlife on your trips, you know, I ran into a bull moose on a path one time when I was by myself, you know, I didn't know I was in danger, but anyway, it worked out okay. Oh my gosh, the bears. So like I had um, one, well, okay, we're always told no food in your tents, right? I had some double mint gum. And um, so one night I awake to a paw coming up right up by my head because I had my bag right by my face. And the paw comes in, rips the tent open, you know, and pulls the pack. (laughs) And I realized, oh my gosh, it's my gum. So, you know, that was early on in my tripping. And uh, there was another time where there was a cub, there were cubs in camp with a mom, and the cub ran up the side of my tent and over and was stepping on my head. And it it hurt. It, It was heavy, even though it was a baby. Uh, one time we forgot hot chocolate on our picnic table at night and we came out and there was a mom and two babies that were there and it was like, get back in your tent, leave them alone. (laughs) So yeah, we had interactions with bears getting into food or bears coming into camp at night. But yeah, the claw by my head was definitely, um, amazing. Now as an adult, I feel, I think I have more trepidation than I did as a teen. And I don't think that I was worried about getting hurt out there at the time. You know, we shot rapids. We did all kinds. I got older and the counselor's like, oh, yeah, you're ready. You know, some of the things we did, you know, it's uh, but it was an experience that was it teaches you. It helps you dig into who you are. It strips away a lot so that you're able to think clearly. And I think what it did for me was it taught me that I can go longer than I think I can and harder than I think I can. It teaches you endurance and it teaches you focus when you get through a trip, you put in all those miles, you go from point A to point B, and you need to get back in time to get picked up, you know, that your food doesn't run out, you know, that no one dies. <laughs> I mean, it's a big deal. And I've gotten as an adult, our trips are much easier. We're not trying to cover lots of miles, you know, it's more about getting in, planting ourselves, maybe doing some day trips, you know. I know the value of wilderness to human health and to when teens are working through trauma, angst, whatever, and you think about COVID, how important it is to get people physically engaged with their bodies, mentally engaged with the beauty of nature and the struggles of nature, and maybe just going back to survival. You know, we've gotten so far away from that as humans. And um, there's extraordinary health impacts for that. 
remember riding in the van when we'd go to the Boundary Waters from Chicago because that's where I was living at the time as a teen. And we'd start getting closer. I always got really excited. And when I lived in Minnesota and we started going to the Boundary Waters, it was that same excitement of, oh, we're getting closer, we're getting closer. You know, and now today I'm lucky enough to work on the edge of Voyagers National Park, you know, and on the edge of wilderness and, this, you know, the big water. And um, here there's a lot of rocks. You know, there's a lot more paddling than there is. There's really not portaging. And I think portaging is unique and a good thing for people to experience because another takeaway that I learned going to the Boundary Waters was you can kind of live with just what you can carry on your back. It is so empowering. So when I was a teen and everyone was buying the fancy clothes and the fancy this and the fancy that, I was like, no, 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 no. I know that you can survive off of very little. You know, it was like two t-shirts, two shorts. (laughs) I mean, in the wintertime, you need more than that. But it was pretty freeing to know that you can live pretty simply and that there there are other things you can eat out there. Something, again, that we get a far away from sometimes in life. And simplicity, the simplicity of being in places like that, because you have to carry it all, is very freeing. I got a whole group of friends to go on a trip one summer. But they had, like, candy in their tents, you know. <laughs> but when I was 16 and I went to be a camper, um... One of our counselors had a serious illness, and they said, we need you to lead a trip, Rebecca. And I said, okay, I'll, I, you know, okay. Um, and they knew me, and I think it's, I did two 10 days in one summer, and I had done, I think I'd done a 21-day by that point. So it was a group of juvenile delinquents from Chicago, and they had struggles, and they their counselor had come along, but they were not a canoe person. So I would say that almost broke me to take young people into, most of them are bigger than me. I'm not a very big person and did not have experience in the wilderness. (laughs) And um, we had some moments on that trip because it was breaking them, you know, kind of breaking through in that repetitive paddling. I remember all that. I was used to it at that point. They didn't have any experience. And so I had one kind of she wouldn't have hurt me, but she just said, you know, if you tell me to eat my oatmeal one more time, you know, or my granola one more time, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> she was going to hurt me. What's really interesting is even though they mumbled and grumbled, we had a trip planned out. We'd planned a route. We had our food. We had to get up early and we paddled late. And by the time we were done and we got back to the lodge and, you know, we took the destroyed paddle and they got to paint it to hang it in the lodge, they had really positive things on that paddle. And it changed them. You know, kids that had struggles, kids that were unsure of life, that had whatever they had they'd gone through that was, you know, maybe they, they you know, made some wrong turns, that this maybe gave them a glimpse of what life could be when that you can strip away that chaos in your head through that physical repetitive paddling. Water, when you can be on water, for me, that always just takes all that stuff away, just washes it away. And so I think that when you can have those moments of clarity when you're young, It can change you. And that's the key of what the Boundary Waters can do for people. It can unlock potential. It can open avenues, both physically and mentally, that people might not be aware of, no matter how old or young you are. It did it for people like Ernest Olberholzer, just as it did for Rebecca Otto. I asked Rebecca if the Boundary Waters and these early experiences as a teenager helped unlock some of that potential for leadership that she showed as the state auditor of Minnesota and now as the director of the Oberholzer Foundation. 
it did. Yeah. So what's really interesting is, is I've done a lot of leadership since then. And, um, you know, I got a chance to lead a, a group of 16 year olds that were my age. I was 16, they were 16 and they had gotten into trouble. Um, yes, yes. Because, you know, um, you, you have to have some sort of leadership generally on those trips and especially with people that have no experience. But yeah, since then I've done tons of leadership throughout my life. And when you're on a journey, you have to rely on each other. Everyone has roles. So there was a flood here on Mallard Island. I was in my second year. We have collections, like we had thousands and thousands of books and all kinds of things and very old buildings. I've never been through a flood, but what you do is you go to your team. You know, So I had my executive committee who I do regular calls with to say, okay, here's where we are today. Here's where the water level is. Here's the building that's threatened next. And then we had volunteers here and I had a staff member here. We have a few staff members. And so it was, okay, it was really seriously hour by hour. What's the next thing we address so that we, nobody gets hurt, you know, that our collections are, you know, cared for and moved. And, um, uh, there was a point at which the water was very cold, you know, the ice went out late and there was a ton of water. So there were times where I was trying to adjust barrels on docks. And one day I said to one of our caretakers, I said, I need somebody to spot me. I'm going out on that dock. Water was freezing. And I was worried about falling in because you couldn't see where the edge of the dock was, the dock that you've been swimming off of. <laughs> and um, so it's just using your head. It's using your head and it's um, not losing, not losing it. And just that calm leadership of, okay, here's what we're doing next. Here's what we're doing next. And then say like, okay, you're going to do this. I'm going to do this. Um, and miraculously, nobody got hurt. We didn't lose anything and our building survived. And then it was, so, you know, maybe after a big storm in the boundary waters, whatever, you know, you pick yourself up and you say, okay. Um, and so we did, and, and we cleaned out these buildings. We have moved part of our collections to a new space in the falls, which is very exciting. Um, we have our boathouse back um, for boats, boat stuff, and we're better and stronger. So, you know, you learn from everything too. And we will be better prepared for the next flood because of what we went through. So, yeah, it's team and it's um, staying focused. So, yeah, Boundary Waters had a huge impact on my life. And I will also say, you know, I served in public office for many years. And that act of paddling, 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 you know, till you think you can't anymore. And then, you know, you still have to set up stuff when you're tired. You got to get your dinner. Campaigns are much like that. You start to feel exhausted and you're like, I can't, I can't go one more step. I can't make one more call. I can't. But you're like, oh yeah, you can. You remember the time. <laughs> Each summer, there are about 130 people that come to Mallard Island to volunteer during a work week or to participate in a program week such as the Individual Project Week, where I came to finish my manuscript about people who've died or been in dangerous situations in the Boundary Waters and Quetico region. The island is a living museum, essentially, and it offers cultural teachings and practices with the elder in residence. In the summer of 2023, the elder in residence is an Anishinaabe man named Paybaum. Paybaum has deep connections to the Rainy Lake area, as Rebecca explains. Paybaum is the great-grandson of Billy McGee, who was Ober's canoe guide. So we've got a pretty deep connection with that family and that community. Um, and Ober did too. He's on our board. He's a board member, but he's also, we created a pilot program for something called our Elder in Residence. He used to provide periodic kind of um, cultural teachings and practices to guests on a kind of as 
desired basis. We actually have a full-blown elder in residence program now where he's here most of the time. And he provides all kinds of opportunities to teach people about the culture, the teachings, practices, the history. And so it's a really, really unique opportunity that not many people ever get to experience. He's, he's, he's a unique individual, very generous with his time. You know, he taught Ojibwe at the U of M for at least 15 years, and he taught in another location. He just did some work at Bemidji State. So it's been a real gift as we ask guests, what impact did that have on you? People have a lot of really interesting things that they've learned and that they take forward in their lives with them. His belief, which we believe too, is we are one, Gubeji uh, Gumin, and we are all one. So meaning that in order to make it in this world, we need to come together. And so I think that's a really timely message for our culture in the world. Mallard Island has been and continues to be a gathering place for artists and creative thinking. In August 2023, a group of individuals from all corners of Minnesota, as well as places like New Orleans and North Carolina, gathered on the island. There was writing, drawing, painting, and all kinds of creative outlets taking place over the course of a week. Some had experience at Mallard Island and were well connected to the Boundary Waters. Hi, I'm Tanya Piatz, and I'm a Minnesota artist who is inspired by the Boundary Waters. What inspires me about it is the pristine habitat, uh, that it's really untouched other than by people that really love and cherish it and protect it. Um, And you can feel it when you're in the waters and in the area, that it is well taken care of and people have a lot of reverence for it. And when you're there, you can really feel it. I love all of the spruce and the pines. I think the aromatics of it is just really wonderful, along with just the sounds and the sights of it as well. It's a total experience with all all senses, really. Um, So I think that's what's fascinating about it. that's really inspiring about it. And it gives you time to really sit still and reflect um, and be introspective and really think about your work. So I'm a total bird nerd. <laughs> I, love, I love birds. Um, I just think they're beautiful. I love listening to their songs. They teach us a lot about the environment too. So they are an indicator species. Uh, So they're one of the first species that really is affected by the changing climate. So it's nice to see that there's still a really good population and diversity of birds in that area because it means that the habitat is doing well. Uh, There are some species that we do need to be concerned about, uh, like the Cape May warbler, who really needs the balsams for nesting sites. And as we know, warming climates and balsams don't necessarily work well together. So my experience at Mallard Island um, feels very similar to the Boundary Waters. Um, It's really, the scenery is very similar. It has a very good vibe. Again, it's a place that's really well taken care of. Um, It has that reverence. It's just very inspirational. It gives you that time to really think and um, grow as a person. 
Finishing the book about people who've died in the Boundary Waters was the focus of my time on Mallard Island, but it became so much more than that. It became about connection, storytelling, adventure, swimming, fishing, all these things that I love about the Boundary Waters I was able to embrace through the experience of writing, creating, and spending time at Mallard Island. And that's exactly the vision Oberholzer hoped the foundation would carry forward, Rebecca explains. Individual Projects Week, this is the second one I've been able to partake in. And I, I did it as a guest, right, first, and then I've been the director for two of the weeks. It's one of my favorite weeks. It's so interesting to watch the guests interact, begin to get to know each other, learn from each other, share there's so much cross-pollination between people and their life experiences, and people begin to understand that I'm not alone. Kebeji Gumin, we're all one. People tend to be very supportive here of whatever people are working on. So whether it's your transition in life where you're trying to find that next place and you're not sure what it is, spending time with Peibami Bines, um, he sometimes helps you find answers. We have Grandmother Drum. Um, sometimes people like to sit with her. She's an elder here as well, and she's been here for 100 years. Um, she was a gift to Ober. Um, some people glean knowledge from her. So I would say it's a place to find quiet, to find space to do and think through whatever it is that you need. But this group is so much, they're just so interesting. And there's a, there's a, a high school teacher, there's a college instructor, um, there's a university person who's in academia, um, journalist, um, and um, some another an artist and we had a storyteller here so uh no it's it's there's magic that happens on mallard island and we call it mallard magic and you have to experience to understand it it is so important that we know the full history of this place and part of Knowing that history is knowing who all contributed and who they were as people. These are inspiring humans. And in an era where we're still trying to figure out how we protect and preserve wild places, we need these stories to be told. We need to be inspired by them. I can tell you I was completely inspired in my time at Mallard Island, I uh, finished the rewrite of a manuscript there, spent a week in a cabin right on the shore, literally. You're kind of like hanging over the water, kind of. <laughs> right, yeah, I stayed in uh, the cedar cabin on the island, which used to be an old brothel, by the way. Floating brothel, I think you said. On Rainy Lake, and uh, it's now part of the foundation and there at Mallard Island. And Yeah, the energy of that whole space, Mallard Island, it's this spine that you kind of walk, this rock spine, and then there's these cabins. That energy was contagious. It was uplifting, invigorating. I really felt connected to what I was doing while I was there. Also went swimming, fishing, talking with the other artists like Tanya, who we heard from. It's, it's an amazing place. Certainly a place that needs to be celebrated and supported. Folks should definitely check them out. Oberholzer Foundation, we'll add some links here. And thank you to Rebecca Otto for her time on this episode and also just for creating that space and being a part of Oberholzer Foundation. And a special thanks to all of you, our listeners, who we do this podcast for. Thanks for listening. 
to sing when I paddle canoe. Feeling not thinking if the strokes are true. We're gonna get through to the other side. Out in the night, the waves beat the shore. You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar. Rule me, rock me in my dreams. You can roll me, rock me in my dreams. So I like to sing, I love to dance. I play the fool if I got the chance. All around the campfire light. All around. Campfire light, all round, all round, all round. The campfire light.